Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 11th, 2011, and my guest is Valerie Ramey, professor of economics at the University of California, San Diego. Valerie, welcome to Econ Talk. Oh, thank you for having me. Our topic for today is the effect of government spending on output and employment, the effectiveness of what has come to be called stimulus. You've done a lot of important work in this area, including a very thorough and useful survey of past work done by yourself and, and many, many others, and you you lay out the range of effects that people have found. We'll put a link up to that paper as well as to your other work on the impact of spending and military spending in particular on the economy. Let's start by talking in very general terms about a term that I think people hear all the time, certainly in the economics literature, but it even comes into the everyday language of the of the press occasionally, which is the multiplier. Uh, what do people mean by the multiplier when they when they uh, when they use that term and what are the relevant magnitudes that that interest us in policy? Okay, well, the multiplier is a concept that comes from the good old-fashioned traditional Keynesian model that many people may have seen in their first course in macroeconomics. And it's simply asking the following. If the government increases its spending by $1, how much will overall GDP or output increase? So a multiplier of 1 means that if the government increases its spending by $1, GDP will increase by $1. If we have a multiplier of 1.5, it means that government, an increase in government spending of $1.50 or of $1 will increase GDP by $1.50. Which is glorious. Exactly. Now, since GDP consists of the sum of government spending, consumer purchases, and investment, a multiplier of 1 is basically saying that the government increase in $1 is not leading to more consumption or investment or net exports, which is yet a fourth component. It says it's just going straight through to GDP and not really stimulating the private economy. So people are really looking for multipliers greater than one in order for short-run stimulus policies to have a good effect. And in, conversely, a, a, less, a multiplier of less than one indicates that there's been some destructiveness of that Im- increase on exactly. the private sector. And that's what we've traditionally called crowding out. Yes. So if the government increases its spending by $1 and we see that GDP increases by $0.60, cents, that suggests that that government spending has crowded out some kind of private spending, such as investment or consumption or net exports. And one of the confusions in thinking about this carefully, of course, is that measuring that and drawing policy conclusions from that magnitude is going to depend on how the government spending is financed. And if the financing is debt financed, there's presumably future taxes that are going to have to be raised that have their own independent effects. So when we're, ta- I assume, so when we're talking about a multiplier of less than one equal to one or greater than one, we're usually ignoring any future impact from tax increases unless they're anticipated. Is that, is that a fair summary? Yes. So 
So there's several notions that we have to think about in terms of taxes. Uh, it, when I talk about this, typically, I try to focus on the question at hand right now, which is what is the impact of an increase in government spending that's financed with deficits now, but where people know that taxes are going to be raised in the future, okay? If taxes were the kind of thing that were sort of per head taxes, where if you're alive, you pay $100 sort of tax, it's not clear that there would be much difference whether it's deficit financed or it's tax financed now. But we don't what, tax people that way. Well, we don't tax <laughs> people that way. And the evidence suggests that the way we do tax people, which is basically taking a percentage of their income or taking a percentage of their profits, has a much more negative effect on the economy. So the leading estimates are, say, the ones by Romer and Romer, who find tax... That would be multi- Christina and David Romer. That's right, Christina Romer and David Romer who find tax multipliers of between minus 2.5 and minus 3. So meaning that a $1 increases in taxes leads to a 2.5 to $3 decrease in GDP. Big impacts of the distortionary effect of taxes. Exactly. Which suggests that government spending better be doing something really productive if it's going to be financed. That's right. So presumably when the economy is faced with 9% unemployment, people might be willing to get that short-run benefit and pay that long-run cost. But that short-run benefit, as you say, had better be pretty big to be, make it worth it to pay that long-run cost. Let me let me ask you a question mm-hmm. about the that uh, effective taxes because I'm someone who generally is would like smaller government and am not a big fan of of the stimulus, so I have that bias. So I tend to applaud, and my, people like me tend to applaud these numbers that find large negative impacts of taxation. Mm-hmm. Why do they find those? So let me let me challenge my my priors here. Given that labor supply uh, is certainly for men, less so for women, but certainly for men is is relatively inelastic, that is, not so responsive to changes in uh, net uh, income that you get from an extra hour of work. How do they generate what's going on? What's what's the underlying economics for why taxes are having such large negative effects? And just to make it clear, you know, the argument is, is that when you take away a, a portion of what people earn – they're going to respond to that by not working as much, and the economy will get smaller, and that's going to offset some of the, the gains that, that the Keynesian multiplier promise. Uh, given that people don't res- seem to respond very much in the microeconomic literature to changes in tax rates, why do Romer and Romer find such big effects? Okay. So they haven't looked at it, but here's the following speculation based on what we know from various empirical studies in the literature. So you're, you're absolutely right. If you look at a typical full-time employed male, we know that they do not shift their hours much in response to changes in tax rates. So you're absolutely right on that. However, now more studies have looked at what we call the extensive margin, which is not just changes in hours while you're employed, but rather your movements in and out of employment, and in particular at both ends of the life cycle. So, for example, people in Europe, on average, work fewer hours over their lifetimes than people in the U.S. And, uh, and, and they're taxed Prescott, a lot more. And they're taxed a lot more. Excuse and me, at Edward, a higher rate. 
Exactly. Edward Prescott first made this point, why do Americans work so much more than Europeans? And he argues that it's because the difference in the tax rate. And when other people, such as Richard Rogerson, looked at this more closely, what they are finding is even though the average hours aren't that different for prime age individuals, say people, say ages 30 through 50-something, you see much lower hours worked in Europe for those who are in their 50s and 60s than in the U.S., and also for the younger people. So what we're seeing is sort of movements in and out of the labor force in a way that seems to be a response to different tax rates. And of course, one of the challenges of the, you know, which is lost in the microeconomic literature typically is is a, a variation of the point you're making about Prescott and Rogerson's work, which is that it's in many ways it's lifetime hours that matter, not this particular quarter when I survey you. And high income, high productivity folks, not the same thing, but people right. who are both, right. uh, those folks tend to work very hard while they're working and retire earlier uh, than people used to do in the past. So it looks like they're not responding to incentives, but they are just you have to look over the whole lifetime. Right, exactly. Um, and it's not just sort of uh, taxation of labor income. When Romer and Romer looked at tax increases, they didn't distinguish what kinds they were. So some of them could have been taxes on firms, uh, variations in investment tax credits. So these tax effects could be working through job creation. And that when you raise taxes, there are fewer people, say, who decide to start up businesses. Um, profits are lower, so they want to hire fewer workers. So overall, the growth in job creation might be made lower by the increase in tax rates. And that could also explain why the tax multiplier is so negative. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk for a minute before we get to your, what you've found in your work and what others have found. And, and I want to look at the general empirical challenge of trying to assess the impact of government spending on the economy. Um, every once in a while in this program, I make the joke, uh, which I, I have to repeat. It's painful, but I have to repeat it, which is how do you know economists or macroeconomists have a, a sense of humor? And the answer is they use decimal points. So you know, <laughs> obviously, you have to use a decimal point when you're under one. But when you're over one, um, for example, I, I think the – Administration's estimates of the impact of the stimulus, which were, uh, I think, written by Jared Bernstein and Christina Romer, the same one of the Romers we've been talking about, they used a multiplier, I think, of 1.52, not 1.5, but 1.52 or 1.57 in some of the estimates I saw. So that's a very precise estimate of something that I I think we're going to learn is hard to measure precisely. But talk about the general challenge. What you're trying to do in these kind of empirical exercises when you're trying to assess the impact of government spending, you're trying to, quote, hold everything else constant or control for it statistically and assess just the impact of, of government spending. Why is that so hard to do with any precision? Okay. The main reason that it's difficult to do is that economists are not allowed to run experiments on the economy. Okay. Darn. So, so think of the example. So I was at the IMF a couple of weeks ago, and I said, ideally, the IMF would go out and take a bunch of countries that were similar and put in some control variables and then randomly assign countries to those who would have a two-year increase in government spending that was known to be temporary, deficit financed, and taxes would go up later to finance it. And then the other, the control group of countries wouldn't have anything like that happen. Then two years later, the uh, good statisticians from the IMF would go in and run some very simple statistical analysis to see what was the difference in the growth rate in GDP in the countries that were the treatment group where government spending was just 
randomly increase compared to those countries where it didn't. Unfortunately, well, probably, probably fortunately, the IMF yeah. <laughs> is not allowed to run that experiment. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why uh, economists have to use econometrics. And in fact, the Nobel Prize winners this year, Chris Sims and Tom Sargent, were instrumental in uh, uh, improving the way that macroeconomists tried to reproduce a controlled experiment in a very uncontrolled environment. So there are several issues. So, for example, suppose we say, what happens to the economy when the government has stimulus packages? What we want to really do is compare it to the counterfactual. What would have happened had they not had a stimulus package? The problem is it's very hard to figure out the counterfactual. So there's the infamous diagram by Christina Romer and Jared Bernstein that says if we don't have a stimulus package, the unemployment rate will go up to, I think it was 8%. Correct, 8 point something. 8 point something they, percent. They have a sense of humor. It wasn't yes. just 8, it was 8 point something. Right, but, and then with the stimulus package, it will only go up to 7 something. It'll and decline it'll come, more quickly. Exactly. Yeah. Now, in fact, a huge stimulus package was passed, and the unemployment rate went up past, you know, almost 10. to 10%. It went a little over 10. That's right. So the question is, so one possibility would be, had we not passed the stimulus package, the unemployment rate would have been 12%. Yeah. Or it could be that the stimulus package didn't do anything, and the unemployment rate is exactly what it would have been had it not been passed. Or worse. Or it yeah. could be that the stimulus package actually <laughs> made it worse. You know, yeah. made it worse. It's so hard to figure out what the counterfactual is, and that's the statistical challenge uh, that we face as economists, and that's why people are giving so many answers. It's not that they're doing uh, wrong techniques. It is that it is very hard to get a handle on this, and there's no one way to do it. It's also a simultaneity problem, which is that – I'm just going to mention this. So we'll get into it yeah. in a little more detail, but of course, uh, when a government decides to increase spending – how it does it, uh, and what it does alongside that in the monetary area and in tax policy and in regulations and everything else, of course, is all going on at the same time. Absolutely. And you can't always control for that. First of all, you can't always control for all the things that have changed. That's one of the general problems when you have a multivariate world, a world where more than right. one thing changes at the same time. But you've, worse than that, you've got causation running in both directions. Exactly. You could have the economy doing really poorly, encouraging stimulus, leading you to a false conclusion that stimulus causes the bad economy or vice exactly. versa. The economy would have covered anyway and then the stimulus looks like it that cor because correla correlation is not causation, you could falsely conclude that. So that to, to put it in layman's terms, layperson's terms, you have a big, messy set of real-world complexity, and you don't have data on everything, and you've got to do the best you can. So um, bef before we go to your, pati your particular um, work, two special challenges in these empirical um, um, measures, one of them is expectations, which are never observed directly, but of course matter. People look ahead. And the other is um, – uh, timing, which is related to expectations in your work, you spent a lot yeah. of time worrying about when did those expectations really have a chance to form. Let's talk about expectations generally for a minute. Uh, there was a big debate in the in the 80s in the economics literature, which is now, of course, coming back to life, about when future tax increases would induce behavior now. What we right. talked about before, when we talked about the Romer uh, coefficients or the 
the tax negative tax multiplier, you were just looking at the fact that you know when a tax increase comes, people respond. Right. But in fact, a lot of people argue that they respond now for even though the tax increases are coming later, and the same would be true for changes in government spending. Why are those Why are those expectations relevant, and how can you possibly uh, measure those effects accurately? Okay, so let me give two examples where they're relevant and then talk about trying to measure them. So um, let's talk about taxes. Suppose that you were told and you believed that taxes would be unchanged this year. So let's take sales taxes, actually, because that's really clear, that sales taxes are going to stay where they are this year, but that next year they're going to go up to 15%. Yeah, I'm good at that one. Yes, if you were somebody who was thinking of buying, say, a major durable good such as an automobile, that sort of thing, next year, what would you do? Try to move it forward. You would try to move it forward. So, in fact, you would get thinking that taxes are going to be higher next year can actually spur the economy this year. Now, consumers will pay attention to this sort of on the margin. People will often... uh, change their purchases by several months. But for the most part, consumers don't spend as much time on this. But businesses really pay attention. And some of the work by uh, Christopher House and Matthew Shapiro shows that the phase-in of some of the Bush tax cuts, the particular parts on business, actually led the recovery from the 2001 recession to be slower than it otherwise would have because people were waiting for those tax cuts that they knew were going to be phased in in the future. Yeah, that's fascinating. I wonder how robust those findings are, but it's an interesting... It's certainly a, it's a, it's a real effect. The question always is, how big yeah. is it? Yeah, how big. So then the second thing is with respect to government spending, and that's where I've been doing work. Um, what I found is that when there are major increases in government spending that are anticipated, that everybody is paying attention to. And the major increases I'm thinking about are the lead-up to World War II, what happened when North Korea invaded South Korea in June 1950, the Vietnam War getting off, off, and um, Carter-Reagan buildup, as well as 9-11, that even though government spending cannot increase much in the short run, People know it's going to increase later, and firms start gearing up. Consumers start responding is what I see in the data. So even though you don't see the government spending increase right now, it's that anticipation of the future increase that leads to a change in in behavior now. And it affects how you measure the impact because if the change has already taken place and you start to measure it from that baseline, you're going to get a very different estimate than if you start at the right time. Exactly. So the standard way of doing this takes the change in government spending itself to be the, the news about the, you know, the news about the what's happening. Yeah. Right. And therefore, they're using the wrong baseline because they're looking at it from that point in time. What I did in my research was to go back to Business Week for the most part, but also New York Times, and look at where Business Week was predicted a major change in the path of government spending and then use the variable at that point and found that the economy started responding right away. Which is really incredibly clever and interesting and um, could actually be true. Um, the reason you looked at – now we're going to segue into your work. Okay. One of the reasons you look into military spending, obviously, and other people – you're not alone in doing this. A number right. of researchers have tried to, to just look at military spending because that has the best claim to being – 
endogenous. Uh, I mean, it's an exogenous, meaning not complicated by this possible uh, two-directional interaction between government response and the state of the economy, that it's independent, it's closer to a natural experiment, correct? Exactly. So particularly the big buildup. So I, I tried to focus on ones that were driven by external military and political events. Now, the sort of the year to year, during normal times, what I found from reading Business Week every week from 1939 to the present. Lucky you. It's almost <laughs> as impressive as uh, Alan Meltzer's reading of all the minutes of the Federal Reserve since 1913. Not quite as impressive, though, but it's yeah, still very impressive. I, I would rather read Business Week. I think it's a little <laughs> bit more exciting. Um, the, but during normal years, how much they, they cut the defense budget is related to how much of a deficit there is. So we want to make sure to take those parts out. But the really big increases that I focused on, or say the fall of the Berlin Wall leading to the end of the Cold War, are ones that are are over and above not related to how the economy is doing. And that's exactly why so many of us like to use military spending. Now, one of the challenges of that exercise, um, well, I'm going to come to that in a minute. Tell us what you find. Okay. When, you, when you do that and you and you look at the impact of... Maybe the closest thing you can find to exogenous spending, an outside threat that's not related to the state of the economy or the deficit that where everyone agrees we've got to spend more money. The money kicks in. You argue, argue that we should start the money. The money may kick in at date X, but before that, people start responding to it because they realize it's it's almost inevitable if, or at least has a high probability. And what do you find the impact of those gov- that amount those government spending episodes is? Okay. So – I find estimates of the multiplier. So again, that's, you know, $1 increase in government spending. What does that do to GDP? I find estimates that range from 0.8 to 1.2. So one is right in the middle there. You know, it depends on the sample and just, you know, small little ways of calculating the multiplier. Different assumptions. 0.8 to 1.2. And and the standard errors are pretty big. So, um, you know, even with... Which means? Which means that the uncertainty about the statistical estimate... Is quite large. It's imprecise. It's imprecise, exactly. It could be a lot lower than 0.8. It could be bigger than 1.2. Exactly. Don't you have some that are 0.6 also? It, Barrow has 0.6. Okay, I thought you also had I think, you know, I might when I, ju- when I just did it over World War II, and we can talk about okay. that with respect to the zero lower bound. Um, I find that in the short run, consumption actually falls a little bit. It's, for the most part, statistically significant, but consumption. Consumption falls and then goes back, you know, recovering somewhat as government spending starts going back down. That's completely consistent with the mainstream neoclassical model, but it's completely inconsistent with the traditional Keynesian yeah. model. So it's a challenge to the Keynesian model. Exactly. In fact, I'd, I'd also I'd add, by the way, it's it's consistent with the cla- you don't have to go neoclassical. It's, cla- right, it's consistent classical. with the classical. Uh, argument that would say uh, government spends more or less there's fewer resources available for other things and so by definition people are going to have to consume less exactly. we have more tanks there's less butter that's exactly right whereas the keynesian argument is more tanks soldiers and tank makers have more money they spend it that stimulates the butter industry because they eat butter and um it requires some general slackness rather than uh specific slackness and i think so anyway go ahead right so um, on investment, I tend to find that investment actually goes up at first and then falls. And that's actually also consistent with the neoclassical model. Private because investment, you're talking about. Private investment. 
because initially uh, firms know that there are good, there's going to be an increase in government spending, and they actually want to increase the number of factories they have. Now, part of that, you know, part of that consumer spending gets crowded out, but at the very beginning, they do increase their investment, but then it goes down as it becomes more and more crowded out. And I that's not, because there's more steel going into tanks and there's less available to build a factory, et cetera. The price goes up. Yes. Uh, there's, there's price effects. Labor gets more expensive. That If it's not totally unemployed, there's all kinds of effects that are going to discourage private consumption and investment. Also, I find that hours worked does increase, employment increases, but real wages measured at the firm level, so it's sort of the wage of the worker divided by the price of your output, um, those actually go down as well, is what I found in my work. And don't you find that most of the employment increase is government employment, not private? Yes, so that's my more recent paper, the working paper, um, where I sort of changed the question a little bit because it became obvious as we were going through this recession, and I don't even think what we have now be called a recovery. It's sort of just staying near the bottom. Um, that in a way, we don't care so much what the multiplier is on GDP. I mean, certainly that matters. But what really matters Employment. is can government spending create jobs? Yeah. That is the central question. That is the central question, right? Because what was happening at the beginning of the recession was uh, employment was going down. GDP wasn't going down so much because productivity was increasing. You know, an increase in productivity is good, but we'd like the government stimulus to create jobs. So I started looking back through the old data and figured out that almost all of the increase in employment that I was finding from government spending was an increase in government employment. So, for example, during World War II and during the Korean War, we had the draft. And when I look at the number who were in the military, a big part of the increase in employment is just an increase in the number of people in the military. And this is very consistent with the work of uh, Robert Higgs, the economic historian, who argues that the you know the the standard story which we've talked about a number of times on this program is uh well the new deal didn't end the great depression because it wasn't big enough it wasn't a real test of keynesian stimulus and then roosevelt messed up in 1938 he raised taxes and he the money supply contracted and so we had a double dip uh but in 1939-41 as the as the US government started cranking up the war machine uh that finally got us out of the depression and what higgs argues is that private consumption went down, and I, I think it's yes. very important to emphasize that this m- endless claim that, that war is good for the economy is a very strange claim given that wartime England, Germany, and the United States had to be some of the most unpleasant times to be a consumer and to right. have normal material well-being. Uh, everybody understands it's a time of austerity, not prosperity. In, f- in fact, you could argue that there are other things going on. That's fine, but it's hard to understand the argument. Uh, it's clearly good for tank makers, and it what what Higgs argues is that, yeah, employment went up because we forced people into the army. That's your the point you just made. And sure, GDP went up because we're we're artificially counting in GDP a tank that's created. But the real thing we care about is is the butter side, the the private consumption of the goods and services that we get pleasure and satisfaction and utility from. The, but in Higgs's work, and this I want to challenge your mm-hmm. his conclusion and yours. One of the challenges for for him. And I think for your work is that it's extremely difficult to measure consumption in wartime because the price. First of all, we have price controls. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of, if you look at the raw data, I think Higgs shows the raw data shows actually consumption goes up, 
But that's because Higgs argues that's because we mismeasure prices. There's a lot of stuff that looks artificially cheap. Uh, there's stuff that wasn't actually available. You couldn't even buy it because of, of rationing. And so you you can't take this, the data that are the, the standard government time series and data series on their face. You've, you've got to look deeper. How do you deal with that in your work uh, when you're trying – you know, you're looking across dozens of quarters of, of data on consumption and, and government spending, et cetera. How do you deal with the fact that the prices, which are a huge challenge, are probably not accurate? I did the best that I could. I took, I created it's new data. an honest data. answer, Valerie. It's a rare <laughs> one, too. I love that. You didn't say, I, well, I solved that by, no, go ahead. <laughs> we only have quarterly data from 1947 on, and I really, because, because my paper, my initial paper was, it's all in the timing, I really needed to have quarterly data going back uh, to 1939. Because I that's found, our best natural experiment, yeah, obviously, exactly. World War II. So I found uh, in a government publication data on nominal, that's just, you know, in dollar terms, GDP, and then all of the components, consumption, services consumption, non-durable durables, and all those sorts of things. Then what I did was take uh, consumer price indexes and producer price indexes and spent a lot of time trying to figure out what kinds to use and then use those to try to turn the dollar-denominated variables into sort of quote unquote real quantity corrected for price change exactly now i was purchasing doing this, power then of what exactly it was. i was doing this completely independently and just happened to get an email from robert gordon at northwestern mm-hmm. who was who didn't realize i was doing this as well he was uh, working with uh, i think robert cran one of his students where they were going back to 1919 using interpolation to try to create data up through the 19 from the 1919 to the 1940s. Well, when we heard that each other had done it, he'd done it a completely different way. We shared the data and started plotting them against each other. And we were astounded how close the two data series were. Great minds think alike. <laughs> so we felt that what was nice is we used different methods, and yeah, the no, fact that cool. we were getting similar results made us both feel really good. <laughs> it gives you it's some benchmark at it's least. It's some benchmark, yeah. but to be clear, I neither of us is dealing with the fact that there was indeed rationing, and there was very severe rationing on durable goods such as automobiles. They, basically, the automobile manufacturers stopped making automobiles and started making tanks. Sure. So consumers, at any price, consumers could not buy a car. There were also tires and rubber and, you know, all the standard things one hears. Sugar. Yes, sugar. So those, the rationing started going in in spring 1942. I'm still seeing somewhat slower growth of consumption even before that. Okay. Than, and so it gives so you I, a little I, bit of justification. I think the rationing did some of it. It certainly uh, dampened it somewhat, but I think that we would have seen the dampening. And even when I omit World War II and just have Korea and on, I'm finding the decrease in consumption as well. So that raises an interesting question, and I, I don't know your work thoroughly, and uh, so maybe I missed this, but one of the more fascinating natural experiments that uh, is just, I think, starting to come out in the blogosphere and in, mm-hmm. in some essays and journals is uh, the post-World War II period. Not mm-hmm. World War II, not Korea, okay. but 1945 and 1946. Yes. It was an incredible natural experiment. Government spending falls by 60, 70 percent. Uh, the Keynesians of the day, including Paul Samuelson, who becomes one of Keynes's great champions, Keynesians of the day predict uh, a horrible contraction, a depression 
Samuelson predicts the worst depression we will, we will have ever seen if we let government spending fall in the aftermath of the war without planning for that. Of course, that planning does not take place. Uh, planning, government spending just plummets. Millions of, of soldiers, some go on to, the, to, get to school through the GI Bill, but millions of soldiers and production workers from military spending are suddenly on the, you know, looking for work. And incredibly, uh, job creation takes off like crazy. Right. So in that time period, uh, that's in your data, correct? Yes. And so do you have – and by the way, um, the standard Keynesian response ex post is, well, there was a lot of pent-up demand. Well, yeah, there was a lot of – that was easy to say ex post. Ex ante, they didn't seem to notice that as the possible right. res- response of the economy. But more importantly, the reason there was pent-up demand is because you couldn't – you couldn't buy stuff, not because of rationing, but because the steel wasn't available to make the cars. That's why there was rationing. Rationing wasn't right. some exogenous thing. So do you have anything to say about that contractionary period I in government think, spending? I think that period is very interesting. In fact, I've discussed that period in some of my discussions of other people's government spending papers. I, just to give you some of the numbers for the audience, in mid-1945, the military employment was $12 million. By mid-1946, million military employment was only 3 million. The labor force was, the civilian labor force in 1945 was 55 million. By mid-1946, it was 60 million. So the total labor force shrunk by 6%. Part of that reason is because the women who flowed in to help out with the war effort then flowed back home. But Some people went to school. Exactly, but you still had a surge in the civilian labor force by 5 million, which, which was 9%. And when you look at what happened, the unemployment rate went from plummets. Yeah, basically, well, the unemployment rate went from about one percent. I know it goes up a little bit because to a peak yeah. of five percent. And, and the question while, is, yeah. how did the U.S. private sector absorb so many workers so quickly? The most recent Journal of Economic History has a paper on this, and unfortunately, I don't have it in front of we'll me. We'll find it. I, we'll put up a link yeah, up on the web. It um, where they said it was uh, export demand. Because Europe, much of Europe's capital stock was destroyed, the U.S. had a big surge in its export markets, and that that was one of the prime movers. That this person went through input-output tables. It seems to be a really nicely done paper. I've only had a chance to skim it, but found that there was basically a big surge in demand, and that led to the extra job creation. Yeah, the, the problem with those kind of explanations for me is always, uh, well, ex post we can look back and find it. Um, right. If, if there hadn't been export driven, maybe it would have been driven by another part of the economy. My answer, which is not very helpful but still could be right, is there are times when the economy works well and there are times when it doesn't. When it works well, it's easy to find a job. When it doesn't, it's really hard to find a job. But we don't really understand those differences. I always use the tech bubble or whatever you want to call it, the tech boom and bust. Right. In 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 2000 or 1999, if you were um, a skilled person at some aspect of the web, you made a lot of money and people were desperate for your services. 2002, that wasn't so true anymore for a whole bunch of reasons, but it still wasn't that hard to find a job. Right. And people before the recession hit in, in 07, uh, they quit their job with not a great deal of fear that they – because they thought they'd find another one. Or if they lost their job because their firm went bust, they, they knew they could find another one if they had skills. Right. That's not so true right now. And it just um, – I don't think we have a very good understanding of why that's the case. Um, right. but let's, let's go to the literature, which, again, you've done mm-hmm. a really magnificent job surveying. And I suspect you've actually read the papers, um, yeah. <laughs> which put you in a different group from myself. Um, you survey a great deal of work. 
your technique, you're, you're focusing on military spending. Mm-hmm. You're using a particular style of, of, of equations and econometric estimation. Uh, other people look at different measures of government spending. They use different statistical techniques. And so there's a, there's a much wider range than 0.8 to 1.2. What, are, what do other people find? Give, us, give me a feel. Okay. Give us a feel for the range. All right. So, so one of the points I make in my paper is, though, is that the range within papers is often as big as the range across papers. <laughs> Explain that. That's a very important finding, yeah. actually. <laughs> because it, it often depends on the sample period. So, so why does sample period matter? Well, if, so, so for example, if one includes Korea, government spending went up a lot, so it's great to include it. But um, in contrast to current politicians, the, the leaders back then felt that if one had a high, deficit, high debt to GDP ratio, which of course the U.S. had after coming out of World War II, that any increase in spending had to be financed by an increase in current taxes. So the problem is, is does Korea have a smaller multiplier because the multiplier is small or because taxes were increasing? So including or excluding Korea can make a difference. So somebody in- is reporting on their Findings. Exactly. One of their findings might include Korea. One of their findings would ex- exclude it, and that gives you a big range within that one paper. Exactly. The other uh, sorts of possibilities are just uh, different specification. For example, it, it's a much older paper, but I hope to see more of the current papers doing this. Um, this is by Davis, Lugani, and Madhihara. It was never published, but Steve Davis of the University of Chicago was one of those co-authors. And when they looked at they were looking at the effect of military spending across uh, states, and they found that whether they used one employment survey that looked just at establishments versus a household survey that in some measure counts for workers, that they got very different multipliers in terms of jobs. Sure, you would. (laughs) Yes. So the range... You know, within that paper was just huge. Um, just on just because it would depend not on sources. not on these issues about cherry picking or making a decision about when the study should what period it should examine, right. but just what source you use for hours or employment. Exactly. Fascinating. Yeah. Another example is a recent paper by Auerbach and Gorodnichenko, uh, who are both at Berkeley, where they were looking at the very interesting hypothesis that the government spending multiplier might be greater during recessions than during expansions. And that has a lot of intuitive appeal because during recessions there are a lot of unemployed people. Sure. You might get less crowding out. Yep. When they run their baseline specification, they find multipliers of near zero during expansions and multipliers of three. Yeah, three. Uh, during recessions. Three point what? Come on, Valerie. They don't say three. three is it 3.7? <laughs> okay. I, I can't remember. But it's not three, is it? There's a yes. decimal point. Right. Oh, right. Yes. <laughs> I, I tend to, to round Sorry. because I don't believe the decimal points. <laughs> yeah, um, but then when they make... So that's very important, right? Because yeah. you've got this sort of these placid periods when everything's going fine. And if you include when government spending swinging around in there, you're going to cause, right. you're going to get a very blah uh, multiplier. But if you only focus on the bad times, you're going to get the real one, which is the one you care about usually. Exactly. But when they make a change in the specification, and this has to do with a highly technical kind of point, but it's in their baseline specification, they do not allow the increase in government spending to move us to a different regime because they do this with sort of a regime switching model where, in fact, you would think when you're in a recession, the typical recession doesn't last very long. So you always, you, you tend to expect to get into an expansion before too long. 
they don't allow for that effect. They assume that one stays in recession. When they modify their model to change that effect, then suddenly their top multipliers during recessions are 1.5. Uh-huh. <laughs> so even within that 100% paper... 100% difference, yeah. Yes. Even within that 100%. one paper, the estimates are, are quite broad, you know, okay, so over a wide range. One of the things that's fascinating to me and, and some... Some, it used to depress me. Now it kind of – it's just the way it is. I think it's just the way it is. Um, we're not very good at this uh, as economists. We should admit it. Uh, but the fact is you have people who think the multiplier is really big, mm-hmm. and some of them are scholars of multiplier studies like yourself who are actually in the data. Some are not. They're just pundits or uh, – smart economists who are talking about this, even though it's not their research area, and they say we need to spend a lot more. On the flip side, you have people similarly who, like yourself, who are deeply involved in the data who say, no, 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 stimulus isn't going to be very effective. But you also have people who are don't know anything about it except they're bright and they're, they're economists, and they, they fall on – they agree with that. So we have this enormous range of estimates, uh, and we have this big – uh, bias of um, priors and, and ideological uh, presumption. It's kind of awkward for our profession. So give us you, – you've been talking about the within paper range. What What is it across papers? So what's the, the possible range that the multiplier could be in, and how might it even – what's the real full range? Okay, so let me – I'm trying to remember what I wrote up on this. I believe I, – I thought – I said I thought that the multiplier was most likely between 0.8 and 1.5, but there are this estimates... This is across all the work, across not all just the work. your own, which was 0.8 to 1.2. Right. Um, some find it as high as 3 point something. That's the one we just talked about. Right. And some they, find some, it as low as... And then some tax, multi- tax multipliers are even minus 5, so the tax multipliers are even have a wider range than the government spending multipliers. And then some are as low as 0.5. Yeah, I think in your paper um, you said 0.5 to 2 because the three right. ones are for special cases of yes. recessions. But that realistically, I think that you could argue that belongs in the range. Right. Um, so one, you know, one view, uh, one thing this teaches us, of course, is that assumptions matter a lot, and all of these results come from different assumptions, different specifications, different fundamental techniques. Right. But but a range of sixfold. <laughs> or merely fourfold is not not good. It's no. that, that not good. <laughs> no, as, as one economist, or I believe it was Roger Farmer at UCLA, when we were initially talking about the stimulus, he said, "Can you imagine if the Pentagon called over to the physicists and said, you know, what's the key physics equation behind this nuclear submarine?" And they said, "Ah, oh, the estimate's point five, maybe two. You know, would they build nuclear submarines yeah. based on people giving them those kinds of answers?" And one thing we haven't talked about is recent work of Alicina and others that actually finds that government contraction expands the economy, similar to what we right. talked about with the um, post-World War II period. Right. So if you, I, I don't know if that's done in a multiplier context, but I guess that would be a less than zero uh, multiplier on fiscal, right? That's right. It's a negative. The, the, the uh, expansionary contractions of fiscal policy suggest a negative multiplier. So – um, I have to uh, quote uh, the lyrics from the second Keynes-Hayek uh, video, uh, Fight of the Century, where John Popola and I say, uh, the economy is not a course you can master in college to think otherwise is the pretense of knowledge. And that's an allusion to uh, Hayek's 1974 Nobel Prize 
uh, address the pretense of knowledge where he yeah. says the economy is just too complicated um, to model in a specific and precise way. What's your take on that? It, it is. We cannot be as precise as we would like, say, as a physicist are. However, we can come up with parsimonious models that are a reasonable approximation to the economy and they can give us much more insight than just shooting from the hip. Well, what's the evidence for that latter part of your statement? <laughs> um, in other words, I, certainly I, I accept the fact that we know more about the economy than we did 80 years ago. Right. Um, I just – last week, if all goes well and this your this podcast go, comes up when I think it gets posted, when I think it will, mm-hmm. it will be a week after um, I interviewed Nicholas Wapshot, who's the author of this new um, uh, Keynes-Hayek biography. And mm-hmm. one of the things that you, you have to notice in there is that economic debates in the 30s about macroeconomics um, were so frustrating because – People couldn't even agree on what the terms meant, what, right. what was meant by investment. We've made some progress. We've certainly made some progress in what doesn't work. Uh, but is there really any difference? Aren't we still shooting from the hip when we've got a 0.5 to a 2.0 and we've got to decide whether to pass a, uh, some package of increased government spending? Do we have any scientific um, unbiased way to assess its impact ex ante? unbiased scientific way. It, I mean, you're right that I think that sometimes researchers' biases come there. I mean, we do have a range. We, we, nobody's saying it's 10. Uh, in the, you know, the standard Keynesian model, the simplest, you know, they often have multipliers of five. Very few people are suggesting that, and most people don't believe that. We think that probably the maximum is two, and even with the multiplier of two, it is not clear that it's worth passing a stimulus that's going to help us in the short run and yet have very negative consequences in terms of taxes later. So, so people can argue even based on – I think people can make reasoned arguments based on even the rather wide range that we are giving. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I like that, although I, you know that level of subtlety often doesn't make it into the no, political or policy <laughs> debate. But it's, an, it's a very interesting point. Let's talk about your work in particular, which uh, is similar to what Barrow finds, and he and he's in Reddick, and they're using a very a different uh, econometric technique than than you are. So again, that's some some confirmation that maybe you're you're both you're both onto something. But let, let's take the lower bound of your work, the point eight uh, okay. or the Barrows of, of point six, meaning. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of crowding out, uh, right. and then on top of that, you have the taxes. So it's it doesn't look like a very a very good deal. Obviously, a lot of people disagree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, both they don't like that policy conclusion, and their own work suggests a, a substantial multiplier. And then they probably pick holes in the Romer and Romer work or work by other people on taxes and say it's it's not that large on the ta- the negative effects of the future taxes or they'd say well that's true there's going to be these negative effects of the taxes but the economy will have recovered somewhat by then and we can afford those um what's your response how how much how confident are you in your own estimates 
and how confident you think people should be in their counter to yours. In other words, somebody who challenges you and says, oh, this military thing, it's a gimmick. What would they say to, to, if they wanted yeah. to attack you? What, what kind of responses have you gotten from other economists? And what are the biggest criticisms they've made of your, of your methodology? Okay. The, the biggest In Business one is, Week. Valerie, come on. That's just it's a magazine. <laughs> no, no, that's not, that, that's not been the, the criticism <laughs> has, I, I would say that, that most of it has been that there's something special about World War II and Korea. Okay. Now, those of us who look at military spending, when we're looking at the aggregate, so Robert Hall, Robert Barrow, and I all agree that there is so much little variation in government spending in the data after Korea that there's simply not enough information in the data at the aggregate level to actually be able to identify any multiplier. To tease out the precise exactly. effect. Exactly. So that's why all of us have focused on Korea, at least Korea and then often Korea and World War II. So the key criticism is... We don't want to know what the multiplier is during a period when there's a big draft and um, there might be other things going on. People worried about, you know, the Soviets during Korea, worried about Nazi Germany during World War II. There were so many other things going on, rationing, that this doesn't give us, this only gives us the answer on average over the history of the U.S. back to, say, 1939, what has happened. That's not necessarily the answer for what happens if the government raises government spending for two years to get us out of a recession right now. Fair so enough. That, that's, that's the best critique of why you might not want to apply the multipliers I've estimated based on historical data to a particular policy that we're considering now. Well, that's a good point. Uh, of course, the challenge there is, you know, it reminds me of uh, a paragraph I'll post on uh, on this podcast website where the CBO, uh, one of the great myths of the current crisis is that the CBO found that the stimulus worked and they estimated created, say, 1.X to 3.Y million jobs, uh, the stimulus package of 2009. Mm -hmm. When you actually look at what the CBO did is they took the multipliers that they had used to predict the effect of the stimulus and they re-multiplied them time the, times the actual levels of spending rather than what they thought they would end up being. So they basically took a forecast and they redid the forecast and said that's what we what happened, which is oh. horrifying <clears throat> yeah. uh, and dishonest in when it's used by other people. They're very honest about what they did. Right. They add a paragraph, which I absolutely love, which is they say – now some say we should have actually looked at what happened. We should have gone and seen what happened to employment and what happened to output in – in the aftermath of the 2009 stimulus package, and they they concede rather remark with remarkable honesty, and it's something I think everyone should clutch to their breast. They concede, well, that's really hard to do because to then effect, to estimate the effect of the stimulus on employment, we'd have to know what path the economy would have taken in the absence of stimulus, which is what you exactly right. a long the time ago, the counterfactual, and they basically, well, that's too hard. Uh, and so we didn't do that. We, we used the, the models that we already had uh, from the past. But, of course, the challenge there is that you, to, for that to be a reliable estimate of the stimulus, you'd have to be confident that the current situation, that the structural relationships between the different parts of the economy today were similar to the ones that where the estimates of the multiplier came from in the past. This is a version of what you just described. People exactly. could critique your model about – could make a critique of your model. But – the problem is, is that they probably aren't, in particular because of that forecast that the CBO made of how bad it would get. In the, the CBO made their own estimates, not just the Bernstein and Romer. They made their own estimates of 
what would happen in the absence of – with the stimulus passing, those were grossly wrong. They confront that too because they're honest. They said right. uh, we prefer you – know, there's two interpretations of that. One is their model's not very good. The other is there were some things we didn't realize that were worse than we thought. Right. Strangely enough, they they went with the second hypothesis <laughs> rather than the one that the model's not very good. But there's – you know, we, this recession, like every recession, is special. Right. It's, it's, it's driven by debt, uh, a debt overhang um, – a destruction of balance sheets of homes, households, and businesses. Maybe everything goes out the window, and this again, I think, comes back to Hayek's point that um, the economy may, may just be too complex to model with any precision. That's right. Well, well, well let's close with a little okay. discussion of um, uh, Tom Sargent and Chris Sims. We are taping this on October 11th. It's the day after the Nobel Prize was awarded to both of them. Uh, what what are their contributions, in particular for the area that we're talking about? Why are they important to your work and the work of people like you? Okay, we're doing so, these large macroeconomic uh, estimation right. challenges. So, so let me start with uh, Tom Sargent's contribution. So he has many, many contributions, but let me just focus on one thing. Uh, previously, Robert Lucas, who won the Nobel Prize several years ago, argued that it did not make sense to analyze the effect of policy by simply running a regression on historical data and not taking into account what the expectations about the, per- the permanence or temporariness of that policy uh, were and, and then just bringing that to the present. So, for example, all of the big econometric models of the 1960s and 1970s would estimate consumption functions and look at how, you know, on average, how taxes had responded in the past, how taxes had affected consumption in the past, and then would use those estimates to make predictions about what some current policy would do. So you can see, so it was very, very relevant for policy. So that was called the Lucas critique. So Tom Sargent came up with Cause ways... Because he said that the, those, those estimations ignored the fact that a permanent versus a temporary tax increase should have should have a very different and did have a very different effect on consumption. You were lumping them together, right? Exactly. Yeah, but so Tom Sargent figured out ways to estimate relationships in the data that took into account that sort of the process of taxes might differ over time, or that the processes of government spending might differ over time. And the way to do that was to estimate what we sort of call deep structural parameters, sort of the average preferences of individuals in the economy or what the production function looks like in firms and then take those deep parameters and then build back up so that we could analyze changes in policy, policies that were different from what we had seen historically. So Tom Sargent, one of his big contributions was allowing us to do that empirically, which is completely relevant for what we're trying to do now with the stimulus package. Chris Sims was also working on this but came up with a nice way to sort of summarize data in something called a vector autoregression, but that allowed you to... And if you take, Google that, you'll get to the Wikipedia page, and yeah. unless you already understand it, you're going to struggle with it. So right. it, it's, hard, it's a hard thing. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so, one, uh, so that was a way to do it, and, and he figured out ways to sort of identify when you could have sort of an unanticipated increase in government spending or taxes and then plot out, on average, through history, what happened after there was one of these unanticipated increases in government spending, whether it was more permanent or temporary on average, 
and how GDP and consumption and those sorts of things, that how the paths of those variables changed as a result of this policy change. So he gave us sort of a somewhat different way of estimating these, but, but they all took into account the Lucas critique and the need to have things be exogenous and the kind of method that I, so the, one of the big debates in the government spending method is that, you know, a paper by Olivier Blanchard, who's now the chief economist for the IMF, and uh, Roberto Perotti had used a standard SIMS vector autoregression for the way they estimated government spending shocks. And what I had said was, well, that way of doing it didn't um, take into account the anticipation. So I came up with my new variable, which was news, but then just augmented a SIM-style vector autoregression and then looked at the effect when news arrived. So, I, that, so I'm mostly using what Christopher Sims, uh, what his principal innovation was when I look at my, the effects of multiplier or the effects of government spending. Is there any um, – silly question. Um, I'll rephrase it. What controversy surrounds those techniques um, – that, that Sims champions. Okay, so there there are quite a few. So, for example, something that we've seen uh, recently, and I've seen in several other debates, is that sometimes if if you don't estimate the vector autoregression correctly, if you don't include the proper variables or the proper lags in these, you can get results that are very misleading. So, for example, what some people are doing are saying, suppose that I know what the economy is. They write down a model of the economy. Then they generate artificial data from this economy and then say, what if I go and run a vector autoregression on that? Will I get the right results? Given that I've Given that it, I know what the I've results are. You've cooked it up to, exactly. that I should be able to identify them. Exactly. And sometimes, depending on how one specifies, sometimes you can get very close to the right results, but sometimes you can be very far off. And that's been one of the big critiques of the vector autoregression. Yeah. Um, coming back to Hayek, uh, mm-hmm. Hayek was very critical of what he called scientism, the use of what looked like science, either in terms of jargon or statistical techniques or mathematics, applied to things that they maybe were not appropriate for, such as economics in his view. Obviously, right. the majority of the profession does not agree. So I'm going to – let me ask you a question, uh, a, a different version of what I was maybe trying to get at before. Um, those who are listening who are not professional economists don't know the amount of work that you put in to do the kind of estimates that we're talking about just the reading of the business week. We're right. talking. There's a lot of work. Obviously, there's there's judgment calls you have to make along the way, but people like you, people like Tom Sargent, Robert Lucas. I've never met you, but I was fortunate to take macroeconomics from Robert Lucas. I have tremendous okay. respect from him. For him, he's a he had a deep and inspiring dedication to the truth. He was not a man of fads or um, uh, the the short term clever answer. He he was deeply interested when I was fortunate enough to be around him, understanding how the economy worked. And, I, and I've and i seen Sargent a few times in action, and he exudes the same kind of genuine scholarship and, and incredible uh, tenacity and intellectual rigor. And, and I so want to believe that the kind of careful and detailed work that people like you and Lucas and Sargent do – I don't know Sim's work, but those three and, and, and many, many others in the field – are advancing our knowledge – and yet we've got this enormous range. Are you optimistic about that that range might narrow down the road? Or are we really in a world, and this is related again to, to the point I made before, 
we're really in a world where every case is different. Uh, that the reason we don't really understand fiscal policy very well is just because the world's too complicated. What do you think? I I am optimistic that the range will narrow. I just you have to understand that from the 1970s until just a few years ago, studying fiscal policy was considered a backwater in economics. And when I was doing it in the late 1990s, everybody else wanted to study monetary policy policy, and I felt, you know, why am I studying fiscal policy? No one's paying attention. <laughs> now we're having a resurgence. Happy for you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> we're having a resurgence in studies on this, and, I, and I re- I'm learning a lot from reading the papers of other people who get very different multipliers. And I think, you know, with the way scholars work, they talk to each other, they learn from each other's work, and you can think of it as a mass of people with, you know, different initial estimates, learning from each other's work, and I think that we can converge to a narrow range or at least feel more certain about the range that we do have when when one number applies versus when another number applies. And it, uh, my advisor, Robert Hall, when he taught, would make the analogy to medicine that right now economics, we've finally figured out that putting leeches on the economy is not a good idea. Um, we are still have far to go but I think that we're, to the extent that we try to use scientific principles, I think that we do make progress on how much we know. And if we compare medicine to how it was even 100 years ago, there's been so much progress made. The human body is enormously complex by some measures, maybe just as complex as the economy. And even though we can't find a perfect model to describe it, having some kinds of useful approximations that get to the essence of the key parts that will help us predict, will help us make better predictions about the economy and help, you know, to understand it better. My guest today has been Valerie Ramey. Valerie, thanks for being part of EconTalk. All right. Well, thank you for having me. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.